Hello, my name is Valerie Osterveld, and I am a professor at the University of Western Ontario Faculty of Law in Canada. It's my honor to present this United Nations Audiovisual Library on International Law Lecture on sexual violence and other gender-based crimes in the jurisprudence of international criminal courts and tribunals. My remarks will be situated in the field of public international law known as international criminal law, which focuses on holding individuals criminally responsible for genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and in the case of certain tribunals, aggression. I will focus on international courts and tribunals, even though domestic courts can and sometimes do prosecute these international crimes. In order to do so, I will describe some of these crimes, which might be difficult for some. I will divide this lecture into three parts. First, I will briefly discuss the history of international law's response to sexual violence and other gender-based crimes, often, often referred to collectively as sexual and gender-based violence, or SGBV. I will be focusing on SGBV in armed conflict and other situations in which atrocities are committed. Second, I will discuss the groundbreaking work of the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia in their prosecution of SGBV crimes. Finally, I will discuss key cases of SGBV crimes at the International Criminal Court before concluding. Historically, wartime sexual violence was not necessarily considered to be a crime. For centuries, in domestic laws and practices, women and girls were regarded as the property of men, typically their fathers, husbands, and sons. The rape of a woman or girl was viewed as an offense against the man for violating his property. This extended to periods of war where women and girls were considered to be prizes, rightfully belonging to the victors as legitimate spoils of war. By the Middle Ages, the right to rape or enslave captured women and girls by victorious armies was used by military leaders as an incentive or reward for their male fighters. However, by the late 1800s, customary international law, that is, unwritten, universally binding law, began to prohibit one form of SGBV, rape, during conflict. As well, military law became less tolerant to the blatant encouragement of SGBV in war. But despite these changes, military commanders often turned a blind eye to its commission. This era marked the start of the development of one branch of international law that governs SGBV, international humanitarian law also known as the Laws of Armed Conflict. 
and certain forms of SGBV eventually became prohibited under international humanitarian law in the manner I will describe in a moment, but were still largely considered an inevitable byproduct of war and not a serious crime. The 1949 Geneva Conventions, adopted after World War II, were a breakthrough in the codification of prohibitions on sexual violence during armed conflict. Common Article 3 of the 1949 Geneva Conventions provides that humane treatment be afforded to persons taking no active part in hostilities, and it prohibits what it terms outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment. This phrase was interpreted to include rape. More specifically, Article 47 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which protects the civilian population, states, quote, women shall be especially protected against any attack on their honor, in particular against rape, enforced prostitution, or any other form of indecent assault. Notice the focus on protection of women's honor, rather than on prohibiting serious, physical, and psychological crimes of violence. In 1977, two additional protocols to the 1949 Geneva Conventions were adopted. Article 76.1 of Protocol 1 on International Armed Conflicts says, Women shall be the object of special respect and shall be protected in particular against rape, forced prostitution, and any other form of indecent assault. Article 4.2e of Protocol 2 on Internal Armed Conflicts adopts a gender-neutral approach. It prohibits, quote, outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment, rape, enforced prostitution, and any form of indecent assault. So up to 1977, International humanitarian law had evolved to recognize that victims should be protected against rape and forced prostitution, although the language of the law did not refer to the physical or psychological consequences of these forms of sexual violence on victims. During the 1990s and 2000s, the international humanitarian law prohibitions against sexual violence were further developed and expanded in the emerging field of international criminal law. These developments come from the jurisprudence of a number of international courts and tribunals established during this period. So let's look at the jurisprudence on SGBV, starting with the international criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, then the special court for Sierra Leone, and the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. And this charts the chronological development of international criminal law on SGBV. But first, I'm going to mention the precursors to these tribunals. The first prosecutions of individuals for international crimes at the post-World War II international military tribunals. The International Military Tribunal held in Nuremberg, Germany, addressed many crimes, but did not really address SGBV. 
there was evidence of SGBV committed by Hitler's forces, including within concentration camps. And if you study the archive of the evidence presented at that trial, you will find numerous mentions of rape. However, this evidence was not specifically discussed in the final judgment of that tribunal. Rape was discussed, however, in detail in the International Military Tribunal for the Far East in Tokyo. The final judgment of this tribunal discusses what was called the Rape of Nanking. This refers to the December 1937 to January 1938 time period when Japanese troops captured Nanjing, which was then the capital of China. The tribunal considered evidence of how, over a six-week period, these Japanese troops carried out widespread rape, looting, and murder, and found some of the top commanders and leaders to be responsible. However, whether or not the SGBV was included in specific defendants' convictions was left unclear. After that, there were no prosecutions of SGBV as international crimes until the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, known as the ICTY, was established in 1993 by the United Nations Security Council. The ICTY was set up in The Hague, Netherlands, because the war was still raging in the Balkans. In 1994, the United Nations Security Council created the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, known as the ICTR, in Arusha, Tanzania, to address genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes committed in Rwanda in 1994. SGBV was widely reported in both conflicts, and both tribunals had the authority to prosecute individuals responsible for them. As no international criminal tribunal had prosecuted these crimes before, both the ICTY and the ICTR became a court of firsts. They created important new legal precedent on the meaning and scope of international criminal law on sexual and gender-based violations. Their most recognizable legacy with respect to this category of crime stems from their jurisprudence on rape, on enslavement through sexual means, and gendered forms of persecution. So I, I will turn now to considering rape. While rape was not initially charged in the ICTR's first case, prosecutor and Akayesu, evidence of rape emerged during the trial and charges were added. A key challenge facing the Akaesu trial chamber was that international law did not define rape, and national laws varied and did not necessarily address the realities of rape occurring during armed conflict or mass atrocity. The Akaesu trial chamber commented on those realities, observing that rape in conflict or during mass atrocity can be expressed in a number of ways and can be used for many purposes, such as intimidation, degradation, humiliation, discrimination, punishment, control, 
or destruction of a person. Therefore, in the trial chamber's view, the definition of rape as an international crime, quote, cannot be captured in a mechanical description of objects and body parts. As a result of this reasoning, the Akayasu trial chamber introduced a broad and gender neutral definition of the violation focused on the effect of the act on the victim. And this is the definition. A physical invasion of a sexual nature committed on a person under circumstances which are coercive. The definitional approach in Akayesu was confirmed in the ICTR's subsequent judgment of Prosecutor and Musema. Shortly after the ICTR introduced its description of rape in Akayesu, the ICTY also decided a case involving charges of rape, prosecutor, and forensia. The trial chamber in that case took a different approach to the ICTR. It focused the definition around the physical nature of the crime rather than its effect on the victim. It focused on sexual penetration that is coercive or forced, whether that force is actual or threatened. It explained the reason for this approach, arguing that the principle of specificity within international criminal law required it to derive a definition through an examination of national legislation and therefore refocus the definition on the acts of the perpetrator and on the body parts involved following the approach in the domestic law of many countries. The ICTY revisited the Forensia approach in its 2001 case of Prosecutor and Kunarach. In that case, the trial chamber added that rape requires that the sexual penetration occurs without the free and voluntary consent of the victim. Crucially, it also said that in deciding whether the consent was given voluntarily, the court must look at the context in which the attack took place. If the circumstances are coercive, such as in a detention setting, then consent can never be freely or voluntarily given, and it doesn't matter if force or threat of force is or is not used. This approach was confirmed by the appeals chamber, which also tried to bridge the gap between the reasoning in Akayesu and Frunzia by finding that the circumstances of rape in most cases charged as either war crimes or crimes against humanity, will almost universally be coercive. That is to say that true consent will not be possible. The division in the ICTR and ICTY jurisprudence led to some confusion, particularly within the ICTR. However, in time, the tribunal's jurisprudence became more uniform and the ICTR jurisprudence acknowledged the Akayesu definition but adopted the Kunarach approach. The Kunarach definition later influenced the special court for Sierra Leone. Another significant advance with respect to rape prosecutions came when the ICTR recognized that rape can be a part of genocide. Rape is not explicitly listed as a genocidal act in the Genocide Convention. 
So the ICTR examined it through the category of causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. The Akayesu trial chamber noted that in the context of the Rwandan genocide, rapes resulted in physical and psychological destruction of Tutsi women, their families, and their communities, and therefore contributed to genocide. This link between rape and genocide was reiterated in later ICTR judgments, and then again later in the International Criminal Court's Elements of Crimes document. Another way in which the tribunals have established their legacy is through the link between rape and the crime of torture. The ICTY's prosecutor charged individuals with torture committed through rape or threatened rape. They were convicted based on the fact that rape was used as a way to humiliate and dehumanize the victims, often for discriminatory reasons, in line with the definition of torture under international law. Another legacy of the ICTY relates to its jurisprudence on enslavement carried out through sexual means. In the Kunarach case, two accused were charged with and convicted of enslaving five girls and one young woman. Two victims were kept in an abandoned house by Kunarach, and four were kept by his co-accused, Kovach, in his apartment. They were physically unable to leave, and even when the door was unlocked, they were psychologically unable to leave because they would have had nowhere to go had they attempted to flee, and they were afraid of the treatment that they would receive if they were recaptured. While in captivity, the victims were frequently raped, sexually assaulted in other ways, threatened, beaten, forced to dance naked for entertainment, and forced to do household chores. Some were offered to others for sexual exploitation and sold for cash. This was the first time that enslavement was interpreted to include sexual servitude within an international criminal tribunal. The statutes of both the ICTY and ICTR listed persecution as a crime against humanity, but only recognized political, racial, and religious grounds of persecution. It was only the later adopted Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that itemized gender as a specific discriminatory ground of persecution. But despite the gap in the tribunal statutes, the ICTY and ICTR did develop important case law on persecution carried out through gendered means. At the ICTY, both the trial and appeals chambers found that rape and sexual assault can constitute persecutory acts. In one example, the ICTY found that it was persecution when detained civilian men were ordered to put their penises in each other's mouths as a form of humiliation and discrimination. The ICTY also classified other acts as persecution, such as when a Bosnian-Croat woman was forced to undress in front of cheering male Bosnian-Serb police and soldiers. 
the ICTR also influenced the development of international criminal law on persecution. In Prosecutor and Nahimana, the trial chamber considered how Tutsi women were portrayed in the media as seductive agents of the enemy and were vilified. With the foreseeable consequence of sexual attacks on Tutsi women, this jurisprudence helped to identify the role of media in creating the broader context in which persecutory sexual violence may occur. I will turn now to a discussion of the Special Court for Sierra Leone and its important jurisprudence on SGBV. The Special Court was created in response to the armed conflict in Sierra Leone in the 1990s through an agreement between the United Nations and the government of Sierra Leone. SGBV was widely used by the warring parties in the Sierra Leonean conflict, and therefore the statute of the Special Court for Sierra Leone explicitly lists rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy, and any other form of sexual violence as crimes against humanity, and also rape and enforced prostitution as the war crime of outrages upon personal dignity. The Special Court was pioneering in its consideration of SGBV crimes, especially rape, sexual slavery, and forced marriage as an inhumane act. The Special Court became the first international tribunal to convict individuals for the specifically named crime against humanity of sexual slavery and also the inhumane act of forced marriage. The Special Court's Appeals Chamber defined forced marriage as a situation in which the perpetrator or someone for whom the perpetrator is responsible compels a person using force, threat of force, or coercion to serve as a conjugal partner, resulting in severe suffering or physical, mental, or psychological injury to the victim. The Special Court also found that SGBV inflicted by a particular rebel group, the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, was a concerted method of spreading terror among civilians. The RUF adopted a calculated and concerted pattern of sexual violence against women and men of all ages, including forcing girls and women to serve in forced marriages to RUF commanders and fighters. This finding was upheld on appeal. I will now turn to the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, also known as the Cambodia Tribunal. The Cambodia Tribunal is a national court established as part of an agreement signed in 2003 between the government of Cambodia and the United Nations to prosecute Khmer Rouge senior leaders and those most responsible for the crimes committed during the period of democratic Kampuchea from 1975 to 1979. In 2019, the trial chamber of the Cambodia Tribunal issued its written judgment in the case known as 002 concerning 
two former Khmer Rouge leaders who were convicted for, among other crimes, the crime against humanity of forced marriage as an inhumane act and rape stemming from those forced marriages. The chamber found that there was a nationwide policy by the Communist Party of Kampuchea to regulate marriage and procreation. The party forced couples to marry and forced the production of children for the purposes of increasing the country's population and to prevent sexual relations outside of marriage. The trial chamber found that both men and women were forced to marry during the Khmer Rouge regime and emphasized the highly coercive circumstances in which those marriages had taken place. The trial chamber noted that large numbers of witnesses and civil parties testified that they had no choice, no right to refuse, and that they feared retribution, including being killed, if they did refuse to be married. Unlike the special court for Sierra Leone, the Cambodia Tribunal's trial chamber found that defining the term forced marriage was unnecessary, given that the charge was under the crime against humanity category of other inhumane acts, not forced marriage per se. The trial chamber also addressed rape that took place within these forced marriages, finding that many newlywed couples had been monitored by Khmer Rouge militia in order to ensure that they were having sexual intercourse, which resulted in forced consummation of marriage. Both spouses felt compelled to have sexual intercourse with each other, and couples who were found not to have had sexual intercourse were subjected to reprisals. The trial chamber found that this forced sexual intercourse fell within the scope of the crime against humanity of other inhumane acts. This approach, as opposed to specifically considering it under the category of the crime against humanity of rape in the Cambodia Tribunal Statute, was necessitated because in 2012 there was a decision by the tribunal's Supreme Court chamber which held that in the 1970s the crime against humanity of rape had not yet been crystallized under international law. In the trial chamber's view, only the women's experiences of forced sexual intercourse were considered to be sufficiently grave to constitute other inhumane acts. The co-prosecutors have challenged the sole focus on the female spouse's experience in the trial judgment, arguing that the male spouse was also victimized, and this point will be decided on appeal. So far in this lecture, I have explained how the ICTY and ICTR advanced international criminal law on rape, enslavement through sexual servitude, and persecution. I also described how both the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the Cambodia Tribunal broke new ground by addressing the crime against humanity of forced marriage as an inhumane act, and how the Special Court was the first international court to convict individuals for the specifically named crime of sexual slavery, as well as how the court contextualized SGBV as a calculated pattern intended to terrorize the civilian population. 
For the final portion of my lecture, I will turn to a discussion of the International Criminal Court, the world's first permanent international court with jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and aggression. Its statute was adopted in 1998 and the court became a reality in 2002. On July 17, 2022, it celebrated its 20th anniversary of operation. The Rome Statute lists rape, sexual slavery, enforced prostitution, forced pregnancy, and forced sterilization, or any other form of sexual violence as crimes against humanity and war crimes in both international and internal armed conflicts. It also lists gender-based persecution as a crime against humanity. Overall, the Rome Statute has been praised as the most gender-sensitive statute in international criminal law. Despite this fact, the ICC's initial years did not lead to successful prosecutions of SGBV crimes. This prompted the prosecutor to adopt in 2014 a groundbreaking policy paper on sexual and gender-based crimes. This policy paper indicates that the Office of the Prosecutor applies gender analysis to all crimes within its jurisdiction, examining how those crimes are related to inequalities between women, men, boys and girls, and the power relationships and other dynamics which shape gender roles in a specific context. The Office of the Prosecutor also takes into account specific challenges that are inherent in the investigation of SGBV crimes such as under-reporting or non-reporting owing to societal, cultural, or religious factors, and also takes into account the stigma attached to victims of SGBV crimes in many cultures. This policy is supplemented with other policies of the ICC's Office of the Prosecutor that also address SGBV, such as the 2016 Policy on Children and the 2021 Policy on Cultural Heritage. The implementation of the policy on sexual and gender-based crimes seems to have had some positive results, and I will mention two cases. The first case I want to mention is Prosecutor and Ntaganda. Bosco Ntaganda was the former Deputy Chief of Staff and Commander of a non-state militia group in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In March 2013, Ntaganda voluntarily surrendered his, himself to the ICC. His trial took place between 2015 and 2018 and he was convicted in 2019 of 18 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including, among other crimes, sexual slavery and rape. He was sentenced to a total of 30 years of imprisonment. Specifically, in the 2019 trial judgment, Antiganda was convicted for condoning two kinds of rape. The first was rape of female soldiers in his own militia. 
His militia was called the FPLC. And these rapes were carried out by the fellow male soldiers of the FPLC. Of this, the trial judges said, quote, it was common practice for female members of the FPLC to be raped and be subjected to other forms of sexual violence during their service. The second kind of rape for which Antaganda was found guilty was the rape by his FPLC soldiers of civilians as they attacked villages. Judges found that the FPLC soldiers raped women, men, boys, and girls. These convictions were upheld on appeal in 2021 when the ICC Appeals Chamber confirmed Antaganda's conviction and sentence. Antaganda's convictions are significant because they were the first final convictions for crimes of sexual violence at the ICC. It was the first time that the ICC had found any defendant guilty of sexual slavery. And Antaganda was convicted for sexual crimes directed against his own troops. The judgments recognized that legal protections apply to all those within armed groups, regardless of whether rape or sexual slavery was committed by members of the victim's own armed group or by members of an opposing group. As well, the Antaganda judgments also add to the emerging jurisprudence and therefore recognition of sexual violence against men and boys. The second case I want to mention is Prosecutor and Dominic Onguen. The trial judgment in this case was released in February of 2021. Onguen was charged with two types of SGBV. First, the crimes he carried out himself, forced marriage, torture, rape, sexual slavery, enslavement, forced pregnancy, and outrages upon personal dignity committed against seven women who were abducted and placed in his household. And, secondly, crimes that were carried out by individuals under his command as part of a plan. In particular, forced marriage as an inhumane act, torture, rape, sexual slavery, and enslavement committed against girls and women within the ranks of the brigade he commanded, which was called the Sinia Brigade. He was convicted of 61 charges, including SGBV such as rape, sexual slavery, and the inhumane act of forced marriage. These were the first convictions at the ICC on forced marriage and forced pregnancy. Forced marriage is not a crime explicitly listed in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Rather, it was prosecuted under the Crime Against Humanity of Other Inhumane Acts, just as it had been done at the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the Cambodia Tribunal. Forced marriage was defined in the Angwen trial judgment as, quote, the imposition against the will of the victim of duties that are associated with marriage and the consequent social stigma. Those subjected to forced marriage were considered to be the exclusive property of their so-called husband. As mentioned, Angwen is also the first person charged with and convicted of forced pregnancy under the Rome Statute. 
Angwen fathered 13 children with seven women. However, for legal reasons, only three of the pregnancies were prosecuted. The fact that he was the father was proven at trial through DNA analysis. Forced pregnancy is both a crime against humanity and a war crime, and is defined as, quote, the unlawful confinement of a woman forcibly made pregnant with the intent of affecting the ethnic composition of any population or carrying out other grave violations of international law. The grave violations in this definition were reflected in Ongwen's convictions for torture, rape, sexual slavery, enslavement, and outrages upon personal dignity. In addition to these convictions, Ongwen was also convicted of a coordinated and methodical effort to commit sexual and gender-based crimes against women and girls in the Sinia Brigade. The trial chamber indicated that Ongwen helped to create and enforce an institution in the Sinia Brigade of forced marriage, torture, rape, sexual slavery, and enslavement, relying upon the Lord's Resistance Army soldiers under his command. I will end this discussion of the International Criminal Court's jurisprudence to note that the court will continue to set new precedent on SGBV crimes. For example, the case of Prosecutor and Al-Hassan is the first international criminal case to consider charges of persecution directed against women and girls on the basis of gender. And the case of Prosecutor and Abdul Rahman is considering, considering persecution on intersecting grounds related to gender, political position, and ethnicity directed against men and boys. Thirty years ago, international criminal law on sexual violence and other gender-based crimes consisted of the international humanitarian law provisions I mentioned earlier, little jurisprudence, and much silence. Today, we have international court statutes which explicitly recognize forms of SGBV, developing jurisprudence on SGBV crimes, which has become more nuanced and more sophisticated over time increased expertise on SGBV amongst prosecutorial and court staff, and international criminal court policies that are sensitive to the complexities of SGBV crimes. I will close by saying that the prosecution of SGBV is important. It signals that this type of violence is illegal, that it's as serious as other offenses. It confirms that victims of SGBV suffer real and substantial harms. It breaks the silence on these violations that existed for so long in international law and brings them to the surface, to the light of day. Thank you.